Welcome, everybody, to our latest podcast in the series of We Talk Photo podcasts. I'm not sure what number this is, so... We're getting uh, up there. We're getting up there. It's true, but... Today, without further ado, we have a very, very special guest and a really good friend um, of mine, Ron Rosenstock. And for those of you who don't know, um, Ron and I uh, have known each other for a number of years. We both served on the board of NAMPA, the North American Nature Photographers Association, for a few years. And um, Ron is a, is a real treasure in photography, and if you, if you have not heard about Ron, we're going to bring you up to speed here because he's a wealth of information, a great photographer, a really, um, and a, and a, and a good guy. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks, John. Ron is in Massachusetts and, uh, we're here on the West coast. So, uh, we have a three hour time difference. It's all good. Um, we're up a little earlier, but Ron, thanks again for being here. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I remember the early morning, I think I flew into Reykjavik and I was getting my luggage and I looked over and who's standing there is Ron Rosenstock. You know, we rarely see each other except in the field, I guess. And that was a, that was a fun morning. Just, uh. (laughs) you there after that flight you know um ron give us just a little history about ron rosenstock and i know you know take as long as you want and we probably can go this whole podcast on that because you've done so much but i'd like our audience just to get a little bit familiar with who who exactly you are okay thanks jack well i'll uh, i'll try to give you the reader's digest version here um I've always been interested in photography. Even when I was a little kid, I was the one given the, the camera to take the family's snaps. So consequently, I'm not in the family album because I was always taking the pictures. And I, I used to develop and print myself uh, back in junior high school. I had a little dark room in my, my mother's laundry room in the basement. And um, I, I was always doing something with photography. And in uh, 1967, I was part-time student at Boston University, and I was working in a camera shop in Harvard Square in, in Cambridge, a place called Ferranti Daigi. Anyone from the East Coast would know Ferranti Daigi. Yep. They're long since yep. business, but they were kind of a the place to go for your camera gear. Yep. So, so Minor White walked in the shop and uh, left a bunch of brochures on the counter about a workshop he was giving at his house. And it was called Six Weekends with Minor White. And it was for $500. Now, keep in mind, 1967, $500 for like a, a starving student was uh, like uh, like a million dollars, you know, like totally out of the question. However, I did get the money and I did that workshop. And I, I, it's an interesting story how I got the money. Um, I mean, I didn't really have any money. And, uh, and this was before credit cards. But I had remembered that my dad took out a life insurance policy on me when I was born, something like a dollar a week or a dollar a month or something like that. You know, I, I, I rang my parents to see uh, if uh, what it'd be worth if they uh, if they uh, you know t- took all the money uh, right now. Anyhow, that was the five hundred dollars exactly. Wow. So uh, I'm one of the few people who cashed in his life insurance about age uh, twenty one. <laughs> 
you know, but that that's what saved my life. I mean, there, there I am. Uh, that, that's I shouldn't say saved. Started my life. Started a whole new life because Miner was um, how could I say it? He was he was charismatic, and he he conveyed the message about creativity. It was more about the creative spirit than anything to do with uh, you know photography and the zone system and, and and all that. You know, back in the day with film. Um, we, we, we didn't learn a whole lot of technique because that, that's not what Minor was all about. It was all about the creative spirit and discovering, you know, that, that spirit within yourself that, that we're all born with. But, you know, how do we really bring it out? And, and that, those are the kinds of exercises we did. I mean, we were doing these like photographic meditations and, you know, talk, I mean, today everyone knows about mindfulness and awareness. Like these are household words. Back then, it was like a cult, you know. I mean, I minus many critics uh, because of, of his philosophy, but he uh, he was just ahead of his time. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, you know, I mean, I, I, I teach workshops like you and John, and, you know, people don't know who Minor White was. They know who Ansel Adams was um, because Ansel was kind of a, you know, he was kind of, you know, the flamboyant um, party guy that, and he got he he marketed himself really well, and you know, uh, but but the genius was Minor White, and uh, you know, I learned a lot about Minor from Guy Tal, who who, who taught, told me a lot of stories. Um, I've since done a lot of research and just realized that he was the, he was the genius. I mean, and you got to deal with that. And, I was very, very no. fortunate. Now, Ansel was, uh, I think, a really good guy also. I spent some time with him. He came east about 1972. He gave a talk at the Boston Photographic Resource Center, and I met with him there uh, because we had you know, mutual friends. I mean, Paul Caponegro has been a friend of mine since the early 60s, and he still is, and, and he was a friend of uh, Ansel's. They used to play piano together. So I mentioned a few names, so Ansel granted an audience with me. And um, he he was very helpful. I mean, we we had a really good chat, but it was just uh, you know an, an evening kind of a dinner uh, thing together. Um, but minor. And, and well, the other thing I want to say about Ansel, you know, because his kids carried on after his death, you know, uh, in, right. in, uh, with, the, with the, the the gallery out in the, the Yosemite Valley. There, I mean, his name really is still a household word after Minor's death. Like Minor left everything to Yale University, and um, at the time, the man in charge of the collection was Michael Hoffman, and not much came of it. I mean, like, they took his stuff, and it sits there at Yale. So, he, you know, there was one show at, at, at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, you know, maybe like uh, 15 or 20 years after Miner's death, and, and the book came out, um, One Man's Eye, I believe it was called, and, and that's been it. So, like, there's been, been nothing since, you know, so people don't know about Miner and his teaching. That was... Tell us the story. Uh, how, how did you meet? Well, um, so, you know, there is this uh, brochure on, on, uh, that Minor left about this workshop he was doing. And uh, and I, I told you how I got the money. So I just showed up on his doorstep. And we had uh, six full weekends, um, you know, doing what Minor called like these six, what he called canons, you know, um, like to sort of like be still with yourself. You know, it was, it was the basic different meditations that we learned, you know, about sort of communing 
with our inner self and how that mirrors what's outside of us. And, and it's all to do about awareness and it's, you know, kind of what for a while was called New Age. And now, you know, I mean, it's taught in schools. I mean, it's nothing, nothing new anymore. But it was certainly revolutionary, you know, back then. <clears throat> uh, after the six weeks, Mida wanted uh, to have a control group with um, uh, a project he had in mind to produce two large volumes of photography called Consciousness in Photography. And book one uh, consisted of all the exercises that he developed over his lifetime of teaching. Book two is called Commentaries. And I was in the control group, book two, of writing up responses to minors' exercises. So the idea was, once these books were published, then if you lived, uh, you know, in the uh, someplace in the middle of the country and, and who you were really interested in photography, if you had these books, you could do the exercises and write up your responses and see how it you know, corresponded to the control group that I was in. Unfortunately, though, Minor died uh, just about when he finished the books and it all went to Yale University and they did nothing with it. I tried to get it published myself. And the only response I got from Yale is they threatened to sue me if I if I would. So uh, I just let it go. And uh, they sit there somewhere at Yale University. I don't know if they'll ever be published, but it was a privilege for me, you know, to be part of that project. So, Ron, would you say or how much of those exercises have you continued to practice through your photographic career? Well, in the beginning, when we were talking, I'd say how meeting minor kind of started a new phase in my life. Yeah, my teaching is still based on what I learned mostly from you know from minor and, and some exercises that I've you know kind of developed on my own. But um, I'm not, you know, I really believe that creativity comes from within. It has nothing to do with the camera. I, I always always tell people that cameras don't take pictures; people do. Um, I generally start my workshops with a quote by uh, Meister Eckhart, you know, the German theologian who said, art is not just for special people, but everyone is a special kind of an artist. So my, my, the whole thrust of my teaching is to, sort of, you know, to, to, to have people realize you know, their own creativity, their, their own, you know, which is their birthright. Um, you know, and, and, and to be able to commune uh, with what's inside as well as what's outside of them. And to also realize right away that you can't buy creativity, no matter how much money you spend on cameras and lenses. Yeah. And what, you just can't buy it. You have to kind of use what you have. Like, and I always give the example of Edward Weston, you know, for most of his life, you know, worked with one camera and one, you know, fixed focal length lens. And that was it. You know, he had the eight by 10 and the 10 and three quarter inch skirts, which was, uh, you know, slightly wide lens. And, um, and that's what he did his greatest images with that seemed to have the most soul of, of any images that I've seen. What a well, concept. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I love that, that kind of philosophy and, and it's really true where, you know, we're all human and we all have a creative element to us because we're all built the same artists are not special. I think that's exactly. a wonderful way to start, start your teaching. You know, there was one. Uh, there's there's one quote that I read from you or uh, on your bio that really resonated with me, and it's you know my work is a positive statement affirming the beauty that surrounds us. 
you know, I find that people get positive energy from seeing my work in my own little way by showing my work as often as I do. I feel making the world a little bit better place to live in. What a positive thing to say, Ron. I think that's fantastic. Well, th- thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, this is like, I think the, I, I think the only power that I have, <laughs> you know, uh, I think secretly, in a way, we all want to make this world a better place to live in. You know, we, we have, you know, by our, our, our work, by our example, you know, we can influence people. And I want people to realize how, you know, what a wonderful planet we have here and how we have to take care of it. And this, this is really my message, you know, and what comes of it, uh, you know, I, I know I've influenced many, many people. And, um, you know, and again, I have to go back to Minor White's teaching. One of his premises uh, or, or teaching had to do with cre- uh, getting a, creating an audience, not just getting photographs, but actually creating an audience for your photographs. And um, I've been aware of that, and that's why I've published uh, a number of books, and I exhibit a lot. And it, it kind of, um, you know, it, it, it gives some energy out there, some positive energy, and, and it gets people excited about just taking a walk in nature and seeing what they can discover. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, 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 it's so true. Um, you know, in today's uh, photographic world, I think that um, people are way over consumed with um, when they go out to make photographs to come back with, you know, 10 magazine covers every day they go out and they put so much pressure on themselves and they don't, I don't think they really understand the enjoyment that, uh, and I'm not trying to sound like, you know, the old guy here, to, you know, but I, I don't think they really understand the enjoyment of making a great photograph, you know? I, uh, I agree completely. Or, I think Minor once said something about the spirit stands still long enough for the photographer, you know? And, the photographer it is chosen. Yeah, and it's a great line, you know, and, and uh, you know, we, I think sometimes we get away from that. I, I had a gentleman on a workshop at Olympic National Park a few months ago that his camera was sounding like a machine gun. And I, I walked over to him and I asked him where his camera bag was. He says, it's sitting over there on the stump. So I asked him if I could see his camera and he handed it to me and I walked over and put it in the bag. <laughs> and I said, now, could you please sit for a little while and, and yeah, get it to where we are here, you know. I mean, we were we were just up in Alaska, Ron, uh, leading a workshop, Jack and I together, and and uh, out in the middle of the out in the middle of the tundra, overlooking a creek, watching the bears fish down below. I made everybody just stop, stop what they yep. were thinking about, stop what they were doing, stop what they were worried about, and just be in this amazing place and try to soak in all this amazing landscape and amazing energy and being so fortunate to be out in this place and try to treasure it, treasure the experience instead of just worrying about photography. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's too easy to what I call become seduced by the subject matter. Um, you know, I, I remember many years ago, I took a group of uh, photographers to uh, East Africa, to Kenya and the first time we came across a pride of lions, you know, it's like everybody had a Tommy gun, you know. It was like, oh, yeah. Like, and just not paying attention to 
you know, I, I had to kind of be forceful and tell people just to stop and just to try and listen first, you know, to, to bring attention to, to, to being present to the moment. And, and, uh, and, and then we could work, you know, talk about, you know, what is two dimensional art? I mean, it, you know, people have to assess their goals. Sometimes they, 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 they feel, well, I'll never be back here again, so I better take 10,000 photographs. Well, that, that doesn't equate uh, to, uh, I mean, that doesn't justify why they won't be back there again. Number one, they could be back there again if they wanted to. Um, and uh, taking 10,000 photographs is just basically out of insecurity. Yeah. And uh, they just have to kind of slow down and just smell the air and listen to the sounds and be present to the moment. And then they might be able to kind of reveal what's really there. I, th I think, and thank you for putting kind of words to a little bit of what I think, but, uh, you know, being present with the moment, if you're more connected to where you're at, more connected to your subject matter, I've always believed that you make stronger compositions. You can tell a deeper story when you have that connection to where you're at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. I, I often talk about, you know, assessing your goals and, uh, and I share freely. My, my goals are to make more meaningful photographs. And, and, and uh, I, I try to explain to folks what that means to me, you know, it's kind of reaching that common denominator that's inside all of us, you know, like like watching a beautiful sunrise or sunset. I mean, you could be a, a painter, a poet, a photographer, a bird watcher. It makes no difference. If you're in a fantastically beautiful place, there's something in nature that, that reaches inside of you and you feel it because it mirrors what's already inside of you. But unless you take the time to absorb it, you, you know, it, it's, it's, you're going to miss it. You are where your attention is, I tell people. Well, go, going back to uh, uh, being in a, in a, in a uh, you know, a, just a beautiful place. Like um, Wednesday, I'm going off uh, to Greenland and I'll be there for a couple of weeks. And, I'm, and people are always awestruck by the magnificence and beauty of these, you know, incredible icebergs just offshore. You know, some of them look like floating cathedrals in, in blue ice. They're, they're, they're as big as football fields. And... Yeah, some of them are exactly. So, I mean, the, honestly, uh, even bigger. You know, a few years ago, I think a piece of ice broke off the sides of Connecticut. So, um, but what we often see in the East Coast are... You know, I mean, they could they could be as uh, as large as you know St. John the Divine's Cathedral in New York City, and and often have like a spire uh, attached to them. I mean, it, it, it's just like being in this tremendous sculpture garden of ice. I once had I once had Alpenglow on top of an iceberg. It was so tall. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So so. Regardless if you're a photographer, a poet, a, a bird watcher, or just someone who appreciates being in nature, you're going to be moved by just just the sheer beauty. Like we, we all kind of seek this kind of beauty. Whatever we do, we kind of seek beauty, you know, and I, I point that out to people. I mean, in every choice they make, they're kind of seeking something beautiful from their eyeglass frames to the shoes that they choose, you know. I mean, it's all kind of connected in a way. So here in a beautiful place, if their attention is really there, if they're really present to the moment, you know, they could capture a lot of that beauty, you know, with their with their camera and make meaningful photographs that will kind of tap into that kind of common denominator, you know, of creativity, of, of 
of, of something that we call a soul, you know, something that kind of uh, we're born with and it just kind of gets, we become more aware of it, you know, as, as, as we get older. And um, this is what the whole creative process is about for me, just kind of becoming much, much more aware of our, our, our soul and, and just kind of working towards our highest potential. Ron, is that one of the reasons that, you know, your, your images are, if not all, but predominantly uh, in monochrome? Um, part of the, part of the, you know, I hate to coin a phrase, but the, the zone that you get into. I, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, it reminds me of a, a statement my grandmother once made. She said, "I'm from the Old Testament," you know, and uh, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm a bit from the Old Testament also. I mean, the the the, the, the photographers that influenced me the most, I have to say. The first one was really Edward Weston, you know, and that was like, just blew me away. And that was back in the in the late 50s. I first discovered Edward Weston. Uh, I was still in high school and I went to a show at the Museum of Modern Art. And it was the first time I ever saw like really meaningful, powerful photographs in my life. Other, before that, it was like snapshots and magazine pictures, you know, um, or National Geographic, of course. But it was nothing that really seemed to have some kind of soul that communicated to something within inside of me and that was black and white uh and then from uh you know from from edward weston's work i i i you know became aware of ansel adams's work and and then my connection with minor white and it's all black and white i didn't really start shooting color until i switched to digital about 2004 and i and i started saying, wow, well, I have this digital camera now. I could shoot color. Why not? And uh, I have one of my books is all in color. I have like six others that are monochrome, but I do have one that's in color. And uh, I often find subject matter that seems to just work better in color. But the majority of the work I do still is black and white. Uh, the last few years, I've been doing a lot of black and white infrared work. And, uh, Again, I, I, I didn't really want to go into infrared, but a friend of mine uh, knew I was going off to teach a workshop in Italy, and he, and, he, and he insisted I take his infrared camera with him just to try it out. And I thought, well, okay, I'll satisfy him. You know, I didn't think it, I, it would satisfy me, but um, it was a whole other tool, a whole other way of seeing with an, a camera converted to shoot infrared. So I must say um, I'm doing a, I have been doing a lot of black and white infrared for the past maybe four or five years now, you know, mm -hmm. as regular uh, monochrome. So I'm 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 primarily a, a black and white shooter, I have to say. But every now and then, oh, I have to uh, add to that. I've been doing a lot of presentations uh, in uh, you know for camera clubs and. Uh, assisted living places and also senior centers. Uh, well, for a couple of reasons, I enjoy it and I get paid to do it. And uh, I've been doing a lot of, um, you know, travelogues. And I, sh I, I will shoot sometimes specifically for the travelogues. You know, well, I'll include people, you know, more cultural shots, nothing that I'm going to, uh, you know, print and exhibit, but they're great for travelogues. And 90% and of my travelogue work is, is color. I always add a segment of my exhibition work to the travelogues 
but the travelogues are really kind of to show people what's there as opposed to you know my own personal kind of meaningful work. Do you mm-hmm. think, hey Ron, do you think um, black and white or color tells a, a different kind of story, a better story? I hate to use the word better because I know it's really just different. But uh, how would you relate the you know the absence of color in storytelling? I I I have definite feelings on that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel color pretends to be more realistic. Black and white is obviously doesn't have to pretend to be realistic because it's not. The world is in color. Therefore, black and white is a pure abstraction. You know, it's 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 you know like using oil or watercolor. You know, you create the values that you want. So I, I and it doesn't have to be anything that is close to what's out there. You have pure uh, you know creative leeway in terms of in- interpretation, and often the resonance of the image has to do with where one value meets another. You know, like a, say a zone seven kind of like high values with minimal detail might meet a, a zone five. You know, the, the gray tone, like those tonal relationships create kind of an emotional feeling. Color tends to be more realistic, tends to be more documentary. You know, um, it's hard to get a marriage of the two to use color in an interpretive way. If you start shifting the colors around, it looks a little strange because the subject matter is recognizable. If you're doing purely abstract work, it doesn't matter. But with recognizable subject matter, the colors have to add to the image, otherwise it, it takes away from the image. So, you know, um, I, I use color for documenting where I am, and that's what my slideshows primarily are. But I use black and white for my own personal interpretation of, of the subject matter. I, I find that in monochrome, and I, I do a lot more color than monochrome myself, but I find that in, in uh, black and white or monochrome, it, 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 you really can really can play with shadows, um, and textures, I think, a lot more um, meaningfully than in color. Got that word out, okay? Right? Yeah. <laughs> For eight o'clock in the morning, it's a good thing. Yeah. I'd even say that you know, as an artist, shooting in monochrome is, for me, it's a little bit more artistically satisfying because it's I don't have the crutch to rely on color or the realism of the scene, it's up to me to compose in such a way to create a compelling um, composition without the aid or the help of color to, yeah. to tell that story to the viewer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I to- totally agree. You know, it's interesting. Ansel Adams has one book of, of out on, and uh, that's purely color. Um, Paul Caponegro dabbled in color a little bit. Paul gave it up and doesn't even like to talk about it. Um, and uh, <laughs> Ansel um, you know, did the one book, but when you look at his book on, on color, it doesn't have the same intensity as his black and white work. Not at all. It, it, you're familiar with the book? Yeah. Or John? yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, in fact, I don't even like the book, frankly. I it's not one of my favorite. It wouldn't be one I pull out to look at. Uh, it's just a documentary somehow, like 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 pretty postcards. It, it it just doesn't seem to work in his heart. You know, it's all about the interpretation of light, 
you know, which you have so much more leeway, uh, you know, when you're doing black and white, you know. So, um, although I have to tell you, I would say the majority of the people who go in my workshops are shooting color. So I have to be uh, careful (laughs) and and not kind of be pejorative or or, or seem to kind of uh, prefer one over another. No, but if people are going to take a workshop with you or w- with anybody, they're going to know what you, what your strengths are. And if you look into your strengths, it certainly is not color. It's all in black and white. Right. You, you, you're right. Um, so, I mean, they know that going in. Yeah, that's. I have to keep that in mind. Cause that, yeah. But yeah, you know what it's like as a workshop leader. You try to please everybody. <laughs> well, you can't, and and you try though, and. Uh, you try, of course. You know, I have to tell you that um, for doing it as long as you're doing it, you must be doing a great job at it because um, I know you're busy, busy, busy. Well, so, yeah, thank you. Uh, let's talk about workshops for a minute. Um, let's see, you're you're leaving for Greenland on Wednesday. Yes. And then you do a lot more internationally than I do. Um Yes. Oh, you, you wouldn't believe my schedule coming up. I come home on the 20th of September. I'm home for 10 days. And then on the 30th, I take off for Florence, Italy. And I do Florence, Tuscany, and Venice. And then I come home for about a week and a half. And then I'm flying off to Tokyo. And I, and I do two weeks in Japan, and uh, which is a, an amazing experience in Japan. It's, I, I went to Japan for the first time last year around this time and just fell in love with, with the, the country and the photographic possibilities and these, you know, these wonderful Buddhist temples and their gardens all over the place. I mean, even in the middle of the city, they have a little town, right? Yeah. We were still there on a year or so year or two ago. And it's, it is amazing. So out of all these places that you go, um, <clears throat> is Ireland still your kind of your second home? Yes. Uh, I was made an honorary citizen back in 1995, had a house there for 34 years, have lots of friends. I don't think a day goes by. I don't get an email or a Facebook post or something from a friend in Ireland. Um, I uh, actually, I started uh, the the whole tour business, uh, you know, back in the early 70s. Nobody was doing international photo tours back in the early 70s. Actually, I, I must – little correction there. Back in 1969, I took a group of photographers to photograph in England. And, you know, we worked at Stonehenge. And, and I went to England basically because I knew I could get into Stonehenge because Paul Caponegro had been there and he got to know the caretaker and uh, sent a letter to the caretaker of Stonehenge telling him that I was going to arrive and – to make a long story short, we were able to photograph amongst the stones by ourselves, you know, before they open in the morning and after they close at night, just me and like four or five other people. So uh, I did that for a couple of years, and then I started going to Ireland. And uh, I was doing Ireland just a few times a year, and I started advertising nationally in American Photographer. Uh, That was before Outdoor Photographer came on the scene. And I got a, a letter in the mail from the New York Times, they they had never heard of anyone doing these you know international photo tours. So apparently, I was the first one. And the Times 
in the travel section did a, a sort of a two-page spread on my my setup in Ireland. And that really put me on the map as a photo tour leader, and it, and that's why, and that's why you're a, a, a you, you both of you are tour leaders now. <laughs> everyone started doing it because yeah. it's, you know um, I was uh, I, as far as I know I was the absolute first uh, in the world to to do international photo tours, and now as you know it's just big business and very competitive. I would say ninety percent of the people who travel with me are people who've been with me before. Uh, it just gets so competitive, you know. Every camera club, every photo organization, every places, even the big companies, you know, are doing these photo tours now. Uh, so I'm happy uh, that I started so early. So I, I still have good, you know, good numbers. I have a good group going to the Greenland with me. Uh, all the trips are, are doing fairly well, and uh, Morocco is already filled up. Uh, that's to be next January. January. So I have uh, like 12 people on that trip. So I, I'm I'm very happy that it's that it's still going strong, and I really enjoy it. I so still enjoy teaching, and uh, it's you gotta the- enjoy it. If you don't, yeah. you know, get out of the business. Oh yeah, you so, gotta so. really enjoy it, and you have to understand human nature, and you have to help people get over their expectations, and to be open to what they're getting as opposed to what they think they're gonna get. Right. In addition to be being, you know, like a psychiatrist sometimes and a bartender sometimes to listen to all the tales and woes and oh, yeah. non-photographic stories and, you know. Oh, sure. No, no. Every, everyone has a story. Everyone has a story, you know, and you got to listen. Do you remember it- the Naked City, the show that was in New York? The last line was, there are four million people in the Naked City or four million stories in the Naked City. That's right. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, Greenland. What draws you to Greenland? Is it the simplicity? Well, it's it's more than that. It, it's being in a place where we're the only tourists. So you know, we're not fighting the crowds. Um, there's a, there's a, a relaxed feeling about that, and you know, going out uh, every day photographing from a, a boat. A boat. That that's kind of unique. I mean, normally I work on land with a tripod. So here I am, you know, at a slightly higher ISO sort of handheld uh, shooting. But, you know, it, just just to experience the magnificence of nature in the raw. I mean, this is like from the formation of our planet, you know, to, uh, to, to see what's, what's happening. And now with, with all the, the climate change and the, and the melting of the ice, there's more icebergs than ever. Um, I mean, you know, the world has always been changing, but never at the pace that is changing now. Well, I'll tell you, Ron, you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing more people going to Greenland. And I'm afraid it's going to end up like Iceland, where the the paths that were uh, three feet wide are now 10 feet wide. Yeah, yeah. And I'm afraid that it's going to, you know, and I see uh, Faroe Islands becoming popular now exactly you know jack i mean you and i are on the same page there i i've recently told a number of people that uh, i predict uh in 10 years greenland will be the new iceland you know every- i don't know how they're gonna do it there's no roads but i'm sure lars will figure it out won't he probably well, probably before 10 years five years from now it's very possible it's yeah. very very possible that, uh, it's going to be tough getting a flight in fact 
we had to turn away a few people because of that flight from Reykjavik to Kulasuk. Yeah. I mean, it, it was booked up like four or five months ago. It was just yeah, no and, 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 God, and God help you if the weather is a little crazy because that that landing strip in Kulasuk is is uh, quite interesting, if you remember. Uh, yeah, kind of a, a, a pebbly. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but, so where do you want to go that you're not going? Any place you're going to look to, 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 to. You know, I'm but, so happy with the uh, the places I go to. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't mention half of them, like Scotland. You know, we we do the Outer Hebrides. Uh, I, I love uh, like the Stones of Callanish. You know, in the Isle of Lewis. I mean, oh, and the Isle of Skye. Um, I'll be back there in October. It's one of my favorite destinations. But they're all my favorites. You know, that's that's the thing. I, well, I mean, Ireland is sort of my home away from home. I could do, I could do a trip to Ireland every month. You know, don't you get sick of people asking you where your favorite place to go is? <laughs> it's so, you know, John Shaw had a great line. I think he said the uh, the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. Yeah, no, I I know what you mean. Uh, so many people ask, so many people. So I just kind of have a, 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 a pat answer, you know, saying, well, Ireland is my home away from home, but I enjoy all the other trips for different reasons. Yeah. I mean, Ireland, I could live there for the rest of my life and be happy. Like, I love Morocco. I wouldn't want to live there. I mean, I love going there. There's so much variety in Morocco from the deserts. You know, the Sahara is in totally amazing and then you know snow-capped mountains and the atlas mountains and then you know the medina and fez there's, there's so much in morocco it's, it's absolutely amazing um new zealand another gorgeous country which is kind of like a combination of iceland and ireland put together with good weather you know i mean they, there's there's also glaciers in uh, in new zealand and um, beautiful lakes and waterfalls and just, you know, the nature is beautiful in, in New Zealand. And it's another country, actually, I, I could live in very comfortably. I think all Americans feel that if they've been to New Zealand. It's just... Uh, yeah, it's similar. Yeah. I mean, there are other countries like Bhutan. I enjoy going to Bhutan also. I wouldn't want to live there. Um, but it's, it's just so unique and the people are very friendly and, you know, just about everyone speaks English. You know, the king went to Cushing Academy here in, in Massachusetts, and uh, his wife went to Dana Hall in Wellesley, Massachusetts. So, you know, they always invite groups, you know, school groups going to Bhutan, and there's a kind of a close relationship uh, we have to Bhutan because of that. Oh, nice. But every country I, I, I work in, I have to tell you, is, uh, is pretty amazing. So to answer your question, is there some place I haven't been that I want to go to? I know there's a lot of great places out there, and people say, ah, oh, you got to go see this and that. So I often say, well, as soon as you can make more than 365 days of the year, I'll have to consider it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing 10, sometimes 10 or 12 international tours a year, and I, I, I got to, you know, I have a family back home here, and uh, yeah. although, you know, with Skype and, and you know, I have a telephone and uh, email and all that, so I'm in, I'm in contact with the family every single day when I'm away, but uh, it's still not quite the same as being home. So, no. and and another thing I have to add about that, you know, people often say, well, you know, they say, does your wife go along? And you know, I mean, my it's a, my job, as you know, when you're leading a tour, your obligation is to the people that you have there, and my wife knows that uh, knows that very well. And uh, I also tell people I started this tour business before I was married. 
you know, I've been married, uh, I think, 48 years now, and I started the tour business 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. so, um, I, I tell people that I probably wouldn't recommend getting into this business if you've been married for a number of years. You know, it would be kind of a shock to, to everybody's system. But since, um, you know, my wife knew the kind of lifestyle I had, you know, before she married me, it's worked out just fine. And, and you know, she has plenty to do. And, yeah, and same difference. Yeah, yeah. So it works out very well. I see you're going to Death Valley. Okay. I used to go to Death Valley. And talk to me about that. Would you agree that Death Valley is one of the toughest places, even for a seasoned photographer, to, to work in? Well, I haven't, been, I haven't been there for a No icons. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, one of the problems is it's been photographed to death, <laughs> pardon the pun. <laughs> but I mean, everyone has been to, been to Death Valley. It's still it's pretty magnificent, you know. Uh, for first timers, you know, it just sort of blows them away. You know, I've been there a dozen times, you know, and then they tightened up on the rules, as you know. Like if you can lead a group there, you, there's all kinds of paperwork and forms now and insurance, yep. and you know, it just became a little bit too much. And um, I I do one internet one domestic tour a year, only one. I dropped Death Valley, you know, just because, number one, it's very competitive. I've done it a number of times. Most people could do Death Valley on their own, you know, because, I mean, all the visitor sites are clearly marked and they're all pretty amazing. There's another place that is one of the best kept secrets in the world here, but it helps to be with an experienced person because otherwise you miss a lot. There's a little island off the coast of uh, Rockland, Maine, that's uh, that's called Vinyl Haven, and uh, because it was named after some English captain, John Vinyl, you know, back in the like late 1600s or something like that. But this little island, which is mostly a lobstering community, people who live there, it's a full-time community. Like they have a school, a medical center, uh, everything else. I, I think they're about something like maybe 1,200, uh, you know, full-time residents. But then in the summertime, it probably expands to four or 5,000. A lot of summer homes out there. Most of the land is private property. Um, and I know a lot of people out there. So I could take people uh, to places that, that tourists couldn't possibly get to. And, uh, and also there's what's called the Vinyl Haven Land Trust, which has purchased, you know, huge tracts of land and made trails so people... You know, just to open up the, the land for people. So every year in June, I, I uh, take people there for a week and do a, um, it's more of a workshop that I do there. The other places are more of a, a tour. By workshop, I mean I bring my Epson printer, I bring mat cutters and mats, and everyone goes away with, you know, three or four actually matted prints that they've made while they're there with me. Wow. That's amazing. I was just, what's funny, Ron, I was just up in uh, Rockland about a month ago and didn't, didn't even hear about Vinyl Haven. I'll have really? to, I'll have to drop you a line next time. I, we go every year and I'll have to drop you a line next time I'm out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'd overlap sometime and I'd see you out there. Cause I was there a month ago. Uh, I, I often go, or is it two months now? I often go like the end of July, beginning of August on family vacation yeah. And then I go back in June to do the workshop. Yeah, same. I was out there visiting family. So, yeah, small world. It is. It is. Yeah, so yeah. so let me ask you, let me kind of change tracks just a little bit. You know, we don't talk a lot about gear on the show here because um, everybody talks about gear and it's, you know, it, they're just tools for us. But exactly. is there 
is there anything cool and fun and exciting that you've come across in the last you know few months that you're using regularly? Something fun? Nope. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> I'm well, very happy with the camera I have. People often ask me, you know, am I, you know, what camera I use, and uh, and I tell them why. I'm a Canon shooter, and for one reason, one reason only. I went from, you know, large format. I was shooting eight by ten negatives for like twenty or thirty years, and and then uh, as I got older, the camera got heavier somehow, and so I went down to four by five, and then I, I switched to digital. So I didn't have a thirty-five millimeter camera. I didn't know the difference between Canon or or Nikon or Olympus or any of those cameras. I did know when I went to the camera shop and kind of played with the different cameras to see which camera I wanted to get. Back in the in, in like 2003 or four, then the top of the line Nikon camera seemed to weigh a ton. Like it was really heavy, and the Canon camera weighed much less. Again, both like full-frame <laughs> sensors. You know, the first kind of full-frame sensors out there. The, I think the Canon 5D was one of my first, um, you know, yep. professional cameras. Um, so it was like half the weight. And I said, wow, if I'm going to do all this traveling, I'm going to take half the weight. And everyone I know who shoots Nikon, and, and, and this is a perfectly valid uh, reason to shoot Nikon, people say, well, I had the lenses. You see, they were already Nikon shooters. They had these lenses, and Canon, as you know, um, they had to get separate lenses to fit their cameras. So people who had Nikon lenses stayed with Nikon. And since I didn't have any 35-millimeter gear, I just went to Canon. And I just stayed with Canon, and I'm very happy. I know how to use it. Kind of like a Mac or a PC. You get used to one or the other, and whatever works for you, you stay with it. It's just, you know... It's a, it's just a tool, you know. It's just a tool. What did what did miners say? Uh, you, you know, become a camera, right? Your eyes are like a camera. Oh yeah, as Miner White said, cool. uh, yeah, seeing pictures all the time. Miner said that. Yep, yep, yep. Well, anyhow, uh, you know, I think um, I think it was a good uh, time here this morning, bringing Ron to. Uh, to everyone's awareness, um, again, uh, few people I know that we can talk to these days have the background that uh, that uh, that Ron has, and is able to uh, to tell these stories. And we're sure going to try to get him back here in between uh, his uh, travels, John, and your travels, and my travels, and our joint travels, and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff up. So. Ron, it's a pleasure, and um, pleasure having you, and we're going to get you back uh, uh, soon. And uh, we do have a website, and that website is wetalkphoto.com, and we have an email address, which is wetalkphoto at gmail.com. And we'd like, uh, for anybody who's uh, inclined to drop us a line with some ideas you'd like us to cover and we talk about or just some thoughts on uh, on what we're doing here and if we could do it uh, differently or better it's all good and, um, and let me just throw in one little plug for ron so ron your website is ronrosenstock.com mm-hmm. and i for those of you who would like to get more information about ron 
check out his website, read his bio, look at his images. It's an amazing time. It's a it's an amazing experience to spend some time there uh, and get to know Ron a little bit better. It is. We have show notes on the webs on our website, and we we'll certainly are going to put all these links up. And Ron's got a number of uh, books he's done. I think you've got uh, is it four or six, Ron, that you have six, for sale? Six, six books now. Yep, and yep. Uh, they're 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 amazing and uh, inspirational. So uh, we'll link all this stuff on our website. But please, like John says, get over and check out uh, ronrosenstock.com, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Let me just add quickly, uh, the tour company I work for, www.potc.com, P-H-O-T-O-T-C.com, and that has a list of all the tours that I do on a yearly basis as well. And that's with Jackie up at Strabo. That's right. That's Excellent right. Excellent people. They run a great uh, – they run a great operation up there. Ron's just part of it, important part of it, but uh, they're good people. Yeah, we have a great, great team. Yep. Yeah. Anyhow, it's great having you. Uh, thank you, Ron. Uh, John, uh, we'll talk here in a minute or two. And thank you all for tuning in. And Stay tuned for the for next now. episode. See you. Thanks, guys. Bye.